Jesus of Nazareth is exactly who he claimed to be. He is Israel's true Messiah. He is the true king. But when we move into chapter 10, we find something very interesting. Jesus warns his disciples and tells them as he's about to send them out on a short-term missions trip that not everyone in Israel is about to accept this wonderful truth that he is who he claimed to be. And so beginning with chapter 10, Jesus warns his disciples that Hostile opposition is coming. If you look at chapter 10, verse 24, I remind you of what the Lord said. He told his disciples that a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. They have cited and called the head of the house Beelzebul, that is Lord of the dung heap. How much more will they malign the members of his household? And so Jesus warns them that not everybody is going to accept this wonderful truth. Most are going to reject it. Welcome to Verse by Verse, where we have been in a series of teachings titled Words Have Meaning with our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff. We have studied some wonderful details in the 12th chapter of Matthew, but I would like to take just a moment to back up and look at the entire forest. The Gospel of Matthew is designed by God to present Jesus as Israel's Messiah and King. That is the primary message. So in every section of his gospel account, Matthew purposefully stresses some aspect of Christ's life and ministry that emphasize that he is the true king. There was the royal genealogy of Christ, fulfilled prophecy, Christ's kingly authoritative teaching. Besides Jesus' teaching, there were the kingly miracles. He healed, he cast out demons, calmed the storm. By the time we came to the end of chapter 9, Matthew was clearly establishing that Jesus is who he claimed to be. So with that background in mind, let's settle in for today's verse-by-verse program with our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff. Matthew chapter 12, and I want to read to you verses 38 all the way down to verse 45. We will not cover today all of these verses, but it's really one unit of thought. And you can see this because the Lord starts by calling them an adulterous and wicked generation, and He ends in verse 45 by calling them an adulterous and wicked generation. So it's one unit of thought. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to Him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from You. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish or the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, he means by that the queen of Sheba. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, when an unclean or when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. 
Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will be with this evil generation. Now, it's been a while since we've studied the gospel of Matthew, so let me refresh your minds about what this gospel really deals with, what the uh, unique uniqueness of this book is, and how our passage fits into the overall flow of the book. As you'll recall, the gospel of Matthew is sovereignly designed by God to present Jesus of Nazareth as Israel's Messiah and her King. That is the primary message of the book. It certainly has many truths attached to that, but that's the primary message of the the book. It's a central theme. It's a central thrust of this book. Therefore, in every section of his gospel account, Matthew purposefully stresses some aspect of Christ's life and ministry that emphasizes that he is the true King. And so Matthew does this through uh, the royal genealogy of Christ. He starts off by telling us that, that he comes in David's royal line. He is the greater son of David. He speaks about fulfilled prophecy. Only Jesus of Nazareth fulfills all the Old Testament messianic prophecies. He speaks about Christ's kingly authoritative teaching, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. Then he goes on to tell us that not only does he speak as the king, he acts as the king, and so he does miracles. He can heal. He can cast out demons. He can calm a storm on the sea. And by the time you come to the end of, of chapter 9, Matthew has clearly established through all of these fulfilled prophecy, teaching, miracles, and everything else, he's established the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is exactly who he claimed to be. He is Israel's true Messiah. He is the true king. But when we move into chapter 10, we find something very interesting. Jesus warns his disciples and tells them as he's about to send them out on a short-term missions trip that not everyone in Israel is about to accept this wonderful truth that he is who he claimed to be. And so beginning with chapter 10, Jesus warns his disciples that Hostile opposition is coming. If you look at chapter 10, verse 24, I remind you of what the Lord said. He told his disciples that a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. They have cited and called the head of the house Beelzebul, that is Lord of the dung heap. How much more will they malign the members of his household? And so Jesus warns them that not everybody is going to accept this wonderful truth. Most are going to reject it. It's coming, he tells them. And in chapters 11 and 12, the Lord, through Matthew, tells us that the opposition has arrived. It will get worse, it will intensify, but the opposition has arrived. And most of that hostility, we find, comes through the religious leaders of Israel. Men who make all kinds of outrageous accusations against Christ. And so we find at the beginning of chapter 12 that the first outrageous accusation is that they said you break the law. You you have done something wrong on the Sabbath. You are a breaker of the Sabbath law. And they were so enraged by the fact that Jesus not only broke the, the Sabbath by eating certain things, working they felt on Saturday, but later they said that because you've healed on the Sabbath, we now know that you are uh, a phony, you are a fake, you are a Sabbath breaker, and in verse 14 of chapter 12, they actually decide to kill him. 
If you look at that, they've made up their minds. Chapter 12, verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. That's right after calling him a Sabbath breaker, enraged by his uh, his work of healing someone on the Sabbath. A little bit later, Jesus, in front of the Pharisees and in front of a crowd of people, does a wonderful miracle. He casts out a demon from an individual and the Pharisees, though they could not deny this miracle, they put a different twist on it. They have a different interpretation. Their interpretation is that Jesus is doing these miracles because he is in league with Satan. They said that he is a blasphemer, he is demonic, he's, he's being empowered by the devil. These miracles are not from God. That's what verse 24 says. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebul is just another way of saying Satan. Now, it's at that point that Jesus goes on the offense. And what he does, he really tells them exactly why they spoke like this. He explains them theologically why they are saying such outrageous, blasphemous things against them. And what he tells them is, is it's their words are coming from an evil heart. Notice verse 34. You brood of vipers. He calls them a, a bunch of poisonous snakes. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. In essence, he's telling them your hearts are evil. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how scrupulous you are in observing all your your Sabbath rules. You are evil at the very core of your nature. Therefore, the words that are coming out of your nature and heart are evil as well. That's why you speak like this. In other words, their evil words are coming from their evil hearts. And, And their words condemn them as being hardened sinners, rebellious unbelievers who really hated the very God they claimed to, to love and obey. And so with this as our background, we now come to our present passage in which we read that a special committee made up of scribes and Pharisees. Now, who were these men? The scribes are the official interpreters of Judaism. They are recognized by the people as whatever they say, that is what it means. They are the official interpreters of Judaism. They're the scribes. And then you have Pharisees. Those are uh, men who belong to a very orthodox religious sect. And so they form a committee and they approach Jesus with a special request for him to show them a sign that would prove that he's the Messiah. They say in verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, at first glance, it may seem that these religious leaders have had a change of heart. They don't appear to be antagonistic. They seem to speak to Jesus with a certain amount of respect, of courtesy. They refer to him as teacher, which is another way of saying rabbi. It looks like they are esteeming him. And certainly their request for a sign sounds sincere. They say, Rabbi, would you give us a sign? Don't be fooled by by this, by how it sounds or how it appears. These men are not respectful. These men were not sincere in their request for for a sign. They did not esteem Jesus at all. These are the same men who we're told had, had already made up their minds that Jesus was a fraud and they hated him. They had already declared amongst themselves that they wanted him dead because they considered him a lawbreaker, a blaspheming heretic and an ambassador of Satan. Certainly not a distinguished rabbi. Now there's something more going on here. And you may wonder, why did they call him teacher? Why did they ask for a sign to validate his claim to be the Messiah? Because they're being sarcastic. 
They're mocking him. Their motive behind asking him to perform a a miraculous sign was to discredit him in front of all the, the people who had just wondered aloud, could this possibly be the Messiah? Remember, these leaders had already rejected all of his miracles. They had seen them. They had observed them. They attributed what he did miraculously to Satan empowering him. Therefore, they were requesting him to perform a miracle of a different nature. Not another healing, not another casting out of a demon. But see, what they were asking him to perform, they they really didn't believe he could perform. They're putting him on the spot. They wanted to expose him publicly as an imposter, a messianic imposter. That's what this is all about. They don't believe that he can give them the kind of sign they're asking for. They're not being respectful at all. So what kind of a miracle were they asking for? Well, Matthew really doesn't tell us. You can read this passage and not discover the kind of miracle they were asking for. However, however, a few chapters later in Matthew 16, there's another group of religious leaders who come to Jesus. And what they ask, the kind of sign they ask for, I think is precisely what these men were asking. So let me have you turn there. Chapter 16, verse 1. It says that the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sadducees were another religious group in Israel. Now they came to Jesus, testing him, and they asked him to show them, notice this, a sign from heaven. There are actually other places in the Gospels where that's what they're asking. They're asking for a sign from heaven, and I think that's exactly what they were asking him in chapter 12. These men wanted Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. Now, what does that mean? In other words, they wanted Jesus to perform some kind of spectacular display of power related to the heavens, the skies. We don't know exactly what it was. Perhaps they wanted him to produce manna from heaven. That's, that's God's food that, that came down from heaven at the time of Moses. Maybe that's what they're asking. Maybe they wanted him to make the sun and the moon stand still, as we read in the Old Testament that Joshua did. Perhaps they, they were asking him to call down fire from heaven as the prophet Elijah had done. Or maybe, maybe they were requesting him to turn the moon into the color of blood as Joel 2.31 predicts God will do. So we don't know exactly what was on their mind, but we know in general that they were requesting him to do some spectacular, sensational display of his power, put it in the sky. But their request was wicked. It was wicked because it stemmed from a heart of hardened unbelief that desire to discredit Christ in the eyes of the people. They wanted to use this sign against him to prove that he wasn't the real Messiah. They have no intention of validating Christ's ministry. In other words, their thinking went something like this. This is what, in essence, they were asking Jesus. They're saying, Jesus, sure, you can heal people of their diseases, cast out demons. We believe you do that because Satan gives you the power to do that. You're not fooling us. But if you're really the Messiah, then here's what we want you to do. Prove it to us by doing some spectacular event in the sky. Something out of the ordinary. Not these physical healings and casting out of demons. We're not buying into that. Do something sensational. Light up the sky with your power. Now that's what they were really asking of the Lord. And the Lord knew that. They were demanding some type of sensational display of power. They asked Jesus to do that. He was certainly capable of altering the heavens, but he refused to accommodate their wish. He didn't grant them their sign. In fact, not only didn't he give them the sign they asked for, he rebuked them for for asking for a sign of this nature. Notice 
Verse 39 says, But he answered and said to them, Here's his response. They say, Lord, show us a sign. He says, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it. Let's stop there. First thing I want you to notice is how Jesus described these scribes and Pharisees. He particularly called them an evil and an adulterous generation. Now, what does that indicate? He wasn't, in in referring to them, he was expanding it. He wasn't simply talking now to the religious leaders. He was calling the whole generation of his contemporary nation, that contemporary nation of Israel, that generation, he was referring to all of them as wicked and adulterous. When he said generation, he means the entire generation of of Jewish people who followed the spiritual leadership of the scribes and Pharisees. So he's not limiting what he says to them. The scribes and the Pharisees only are representative of the nation. He's referring to the whole nation. And he characterizes the nation as being evil and adulterous. What does that mean? Well, evil means just what it says. They were wicked. They were wicked. But being an adulteress means that they were spiritually unfaithful to the Lord. As the unique chosen nation Israel was called to respond to to the Lord as a faithful wife would be to her husband. But she was unfaithful. That's what it means by adulteress. Unfaithful in the sense that Israel was apostate. She had abandoned God and his word. She had some outward form of, of religion, but she had abandoned the truths of Scripture. Instead of following the Lord and the Word, the people of that day had given themselves over to the scrupulous observance of rabbinical, man-made religious traditions and rules. They had invented all kinds of rules and codes that were far removed from the standards of, of God's holy Word. Now, the fact that Jesus is addressing the entire nation is extremely important for us to understand because it gives us insight into this entire passage. You see, for the most part, the Jewish people of Christ's day were a generation of morally upright religious people. They were not secular. Israel today, though there are a lot of religious Jews there, is a secular nation. Its government is secular. Not so back then. They were a generation of morally upright and very religious people. A nation that followed and embraced the self-righteous legalism of the Pharisees. Like their spiritual leaders, though, their religion consisted of unbending traditions, rigid formality, outward conformity to good morals and ethics, and a meticulous observance of a host of legalistic rules which dealt nothing with the heart but had everything to do with appearing good on the outside. And yet, with all their religious activity... Jesus characterizes them as evil and adulterous, but he did more than that. Watch this. In refusing to show them a sign from heaven, the Lord took the time to explain to them exactly why they were so wicked and adulterous. Even though they were faithful to Judaism, devout in their religious observances, and in doing so, the Lord gives us some very critical teaching on why the unbelief of religious people is such a wicked thing. And that's really the heart, folks, of this passage. The Lord is is looking at religious unbelief, the unbelief that rejected him, and he will explain not only why it's so wicked, but the dangers of rejecting him. 
See, the unbelief of people who have been exposed to the person and, and message of Christ does look different from the unbelief of those who are ignorant of God's word, people who've had no exposure. Uh, that's helpful for us to understand because there are individuals that you know, individuals that I know, who possess a great deal of information about Christianity. Maybe they haven't put it all together. Maybe they really don't understand the gospel. But they are often members of a mainline denominational church, perhaps very involved in some type of service in their church. They have some understanding of the Bible. They've been exposed to gospel truth, biblical truth. They are outward, usually very decent people, ethical people. In fact, perhaps more so than many born-again Christians. And yet they are lost sinners who continue to reject Jesus Christ and the message of God's grace and salvation. They are so wrapped up in their religion that they fail to do what they need to do, and that is repent of their sin and trust Christ to save them. So what does their unique brand of unbelief look like? And why was Jesus so condemning of of this specific type of unbelief in Israel so as to call the nation evil and Adulterous. Well, this morning and into next week, we're going to go through this passage and we're going to see why the rejection of Christ by religious unbelievers is so wicked as we discover several characteristics of religious unbelief. The first one is this, very important. Religious unbelief is wicked because it rejects Christ in spite of all the evidence. In spite of all the evidence, it rejects him. Important for us to understand. Once again, verse 39. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now, the first thing we notice in Christ's response, as we said, to to their request for a sign, is that he refused it. He refused to give them what they were asking for. They wanted something spectacular. He said, I'm not going to give that to you. Why not? Let's stop and consider that for a few moments. Why not give them some display of his power in the heavens? It certainly wasn't because the Lord was incapable of it. Remember, Jesus is our creator. He's the one who, when you read in Genesis 1, that God created the heavens and the earth, that's Christ. That's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. So it wasn't because he wasn't capable of it. I remind you, the stars shine at his command. Hebrews 1.3 says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Meaning that the only thing that is sustaining the universe is not gravity. It's not gravity. It's Christ's word that says that gravity continues to exist. If he rescinds that word, which he will do during the great tribulation period, then the normal course of the heavens would be altered and will be altered and catastrophes will take place on the earth. So there's no problem with the Lord's power. That's not why he said no. He was certainly capable of doing anything he wanted to the heavens. But he refused. Why? Why not show, and maybe you've had this question, why not show these antagonistic religious leaders once and for all some heavenly sign? Wouldn't that convince them that Jesus is exactly who he is? If if he called down fire from heaven, how could they deny this? Wouldn't this convince them that he was the Messiah? The answer is emphatically no. It would not convince them. I thought it was a sobering reminder when Pastor Steve said the Jewish people of Christ's day were a generation of morally upright and religious people. A nation that followed and embraced the self-righteous legalism of the Pharisees. 
And like their spiritual leaders, their religion consisted of unbending traditions, rigid formality, outward conformity to good morals and ethics, and a meticulous observance of a host of legalistic rules which dealt nothing with the heart, but had everything to do with appearing good on the outside. And yet, with all their religious activity, Jesus characterizes them as evil and adulterous. They wanted something spectacular, and Jesus said he was not going to give them something spectacular. Why not? Well, that answer will come in the next verse-by-verse broadcast. A helpful part of listening to this radio program is having the verse-by-verse podcast, which can be found at versebyverseradio.org. Surf on over and sign up for the podcast so you can catch programs you might miss or go back and listen a second time for review. That's versebyverseradio.org. Verse by Verse Radio.